right, grab your Bibles. We're in the book of Revelation again, Revelation chapter 20. And I, I hope you've been enjoying our Christmas celebrations thus far. We've had a many, many weeks together, uh, but there's much still to happen. Do not forget that this Wednesday, uh, the Getty Christmas is happening. The Irish Christmas with the Gettys happens in this room at 7 o'clock, but you need to get here early. Uh, we, there, there'll be a large crowd and, you know, it's sort of first come, first serve in the seating area. There is some special seating that folks have purchased, uh, but we encourage you to be here early. I think the doors open up at six o'clock. Also, do not forget that we have our candlelight Christmas Eve uh, gathering. It's a tradition. It's m one of my favorite times of the year. That'll happen again on Christmas Eve. It'll happen at five o'clock in this room, uh, Christmas Eve evening. And then on Christmas Day, one week from today, we're having a Christmas Day worship service. Let me say that again. Yes, the church will be gathering on a Sunday to worship, all right? I know not every church is doing that. That's their business. But we believe that uh, Christmas is about Christ. There's not a better way for us to talk about Christ and to celebrate His coming and to be the church together on the Lord's Day uh, but that's going to be a special day of worship. It, it's only a worship service at 1030, a family worship service. Uh, we're, uh, it'll be a little shorter than normal, especially if you compare it to today's message and, uh, uh, and service, I promise you. But what we're going to do is we're going to wrap things up with a greater level of appreciation for what the birth of Christ means. We've been celebrating not just the birth of a baby, but we've been celebrating the birth of a warrior. And I, if you haven't caught a hold of that yet, uh, I hope you'll see it by the end of our time together. Let me remind you uh, to keep pressing on through the devotion book that our pastors have put together. Uh, and we do have some extras available from time to time. We'll get people ask, hey, do we have any more left? We do have a few left. Feel free to grab one of these if you've not journeyed along thus far. It's really okay to, to start at the beginning and to make your way through it and to see this theme that we've been unfolding, to see it fleshed out in greater detail. You see, this year we're, we've been focusing on and celebrating Christmas, observing Christmas with a not-so-traditional theme. We've called this Advent celebration, Christmas, a, a, an Advent, a declaration of war. And the idea behind it is that Christmas wasn't just some standalone event that we mark once a year, uh, but it is part of a much bigger story that's unfolding that begins in the book of Genesis and wraps up in the book of Revelation. It's the story of a great cosmic war that's been unfolding since near the beginning of human history between God and Satan, between those who trust God and follow Him and those who are on Satan's side. And our fate in this battle is dependent upon the outcome. And so as we've been journeying along throughout this Advent, we've been examining the commencement of the hostilities and how the, the whole scene was set from the very beginning and have seen God's purpose for us, God's purpose for the world, which is to know Him, uh, to be known by Him, to worship Him, and how Satan tried to upend things uh, and as he encroached on God's territory. So we saw the rise of conflict then in the second week where God pronounced a curse upon the serpent, upon uh, Satan, and, uh, and we saw, saw our theme verse, Pastor Hunter preached on that, Genesis 3.15, that goes like this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And that was, again, a curse that was placed upon the serpent, placed upon Satan, uh, the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve. Uh, and it was really a, a proclamation that even though humanity had fallen because they were deceived by Satan, they, uh, Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God and sin entered into them, entered into the human equation, uh, that God responded with a promise. And that promise there in Genesis 3.15, it's a little cryptic, but it was a promise that God had a plan. And that the plan was to send a warrior, and that warrior would strike a death blow to Satan. And we now know that warrior to be named Jesus. So Genesis 3.15, the theme verse for this entire series, was God's declaration of war. A declaration that was fulfilled in part with the birth of Jesus. And so Jesus' birth meant that not just a baby had been born, but that a warrior had been born. And he would take on Satan directly doing whatever was necessary to win the war, which led us to last week's message and emphasis in this cosmic war, which was the climactic conquest of Jesus. And what Jesus did to triumph over Satan was this. He was born, lived a perfect life, never committing one sin, not one wrongdoing, and he went to the cross and laid down his life upon the cross, dying on the cross, that he was buried and that he came back to life. That was Jesus's greatest attack against Satan. And now we today are going to look at the culmination of the war. Because what Jesus did on the cross and out of the grave, that was really the ending of the war, but the war, the fighting was still coming. Satan was defeated then. But today we're going to see how this great war that's been unfolding throughout all of human history, how it will conclude one day. More importantly, how the advent of Jesus is reversing the effects of that war. In fact, Jesus' birth looks forward to this day. Remember what the angelic host said or sang at Jesus' birth? Remember they sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. Peace. The angels were looking at this great cosmic war, not just in the moment, but also looking to the future and what this coming of the warrior would mean for the earth. It would mean peace. They weren't singing that peace had already been realized. No, they were singing about a peace that would come, a peace that the newborn Savior would win through battle. But that peace on earth would not come until Satan has been ultimately and finally defeated. So we're going to continue to look through this Advent lens, the coming of Christ, but that it is the coming of a warrior. Now that coming that we, we often sing about and we've sung about today that's referred to as the first advent of Christ, the first advent of Jesus, his first coming. But today we're looking to his second coming. Not the first advent, but his second. In his first advent, he was born, engaged in his ministry, again, lived his perfect life, died for our sins, was buried and came back to life, and then he left. He ascended to heaven. And when it happened, we are told in the book of Acts that the disciples they're watching Jesus ascend. Remember that part of the story? And they're just stand there, stood, standing there almost dumbstruck, watching him ascending into heaven. And two angels appear and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who's gone up into heaven, will one day come back just as he has left you, as you've seen him go. So we know this. The promise is that Jesus is coming back. And that he's going to come back 
and he's going to wrap it all up. That return is often referred to as the second coming of Jesus, his second advent. In the first advent, he comes as a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. He came to be the suffering servant. But in his second advent, he comes back as the conquering king. And he's going to completely put Satan down and wrap up this cosmic war, war once and for all. We're going to read a little bit about his coming and the effects of his coming in Revelation chapter 20. So we're going to begin reading. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to tr actually touch every verse at some point, hopefully, in this uh, message today. But we're going to focus right now on the first 10 verses. So why don't you stand with me as is our, our common practice. It's a way for us to acknowledge that we believe that this is not just some book, but it is the book. It is the revelation of God to his people. Beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not deceived its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather for them, uh, them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the, the, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire, and sulfur were the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Man, what an ending. And it's coming. Christian, hear me. This world is hard on us. It's growing more difficult. And that's because there's this great battle that's been afoot long before we were born, and it's been afflicting us and afflicting mankind for a long time. But a baby was born. A warrior was born. He's already won the battle. Today we're going to see how he wraps up the war. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of this journey and the reminder that in the end, you have won and we win. And Lord, let us take from this time in the Word, this encouragement, that though the war, war continues and the world wars against us, even Satan himself may war against us, that one day we will be proven true. We will be resurrected. We will reign with you. And it will be forevermore. Because we serve and are on the side of the God who has won the war. We thank you, Lord. Now speak this encouragement to us, I pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, I hope you see that we're wading into some deep waters today, right? In fact, this passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 20, I'm really not taught from it or preached from it much, but it may be one of, if not the most complicated or difficult passages that I've ever attempted to preach from. It's filled with all kinds of prophetic imagery. It's got lots of details. We're not going to be able to touch on all of them, but it, it deals with one of the most debated topics in theology, which is the millennium. And not everybody agrees over what's being talked about here and what's being prophesied here, what, uh, what that is, what the millennium is, and when it occurs, how long it lasts, and, and how does it relate to the second coming of Christ. And listen, I know that there are some people that are passionate about this. I may even be in this room. I'm not sure. But when it comes to their theology of the end times, their eschatology, um, they can be quite passionate about it. They've studied it deeply. They can discuss it at length. They've read all 16 volumes of the Left Behind books, right? Um, They've seen all of the Left Behind movies, not the one with Nicolas Cage. That doesn't count, all right? But they know how it's all going to end. I mean, they've, they've got it worked out in detail. They can give anyone the, the detailed answer of how it ends. If Jesus needs to know a little bit more about how it needs to end, they've got it worked out, right? You know some of those folks? They can debate with anyone who disagrees with them. And you're looking at one of those that used to be that way. I used to be that way. I had a very defined idea about the end of, of, the, of how the Bible wraps things up, of our eschatology. And I, I, I had all the answers. I could debate a long, long time. And then I went to seminary. And learned, you know, I, I don't know everything that I thought that I knew. And I learned that when it comes to eschatology, that there's more than one view. There's more than one perspective about the end of times. As, as good and godly and faithful people have gone to the Scriptures, those good and faithful godly people don't always agree that there are various positions supported, again, by these good and godly people trying to be faithful to God's Word, and that there were a lot of disagreements over the finer points of eschatology. But what I did learn is that they, all of them, they did agree on the big things. They agreed that, like, Jesus is coming back one day, just as the, the, the angel said, He's going to come back in bodily form just as He left. And when He does, they agree that All the unbelievers will be judged, that Christians will be rewarded, and that we'll get to live with God forever, with Jesus forever in a new heaven and a new earth one day. That there in that place will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, and that God will reign and will reign forevermore, and we are going to be blessed to reign with Him forevermore. And so we all agree with that. We may not all agree about the finer points, and we may debate the timing of all of this and the details, but They all agree. You know what that taught me as I went through that process of unlearning some things and learning new things? It taught me that with many subjects in the Bible, especially the the eschatology, that I need a whole lot more humility. I need to embrace humility as I come to subjects like this and to hold what I believe about the end times a little more loosely than I previously have done because I might be wrong. Listen, we we don't want to miss the forest for the trees as we get into this text today. The goal here is that not that we know all the particular details. The point is that we know this big truth. That in the end, God wins. 
That's the, that's the most important thing we can know here. He wins. And when we're on his side, when God wins, guess who else gets to win? We do. However, we are dealing with a particular subject here, and it's hard to avoid it, and it is the millennium. And so I, I do feel I need to give you just a little bit of perspective here that we might understand what that is, even though we may not, not all agree uh, on what it, when it is and how long it lasts. I will tell you there's even disagreements on our pastoral staff uh, over our perspective on some of these things. But the millennium, or as some refer to it as the millennium kingdom, the millennium reign of Christ, refers to that 1,000-year reign of Christ that's described right here in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, the, the 1,000 years is mentioned six times between verses 2 and verse 7. And there are several views about how to view the millennium, like when will it take place, how long is it going to last, is it a literal thousand years, or is that because it's a prophetic book, is that, is that figurative language just representing a very long time, uh, when will Jesus return in relation to the millennium? One of the views is known as amillennialism. It basically it holds that, what, well, for one, that it's not really a literal thousand years, and it's not some future event, but actually that it began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that Satan was bound at the cross, and then at the end of this church age, that Jesus is going to return. And then there is a different perspective known as postmillennialism, and it holds that the millennium will be in the future, but it's, again, they also don't believe, those that hold this, most of them don't believe that it's a, a literal thousand years, but they believe that in the proclamation of the gospel and as you share the gospel and spread the gospel around the globe that more and more people will be saved and as more and more people will be saved that eventually uh, we, we will enter into the millennium, sort of a golden age of Christianity and then Jesus will return at the end of that. And then there is the pre-millennial position. This, this position most folks generally hold to a literal a thousand year reign of Christ, that it is a future event, that Jesus will return first, and then his thousand year reign will begin. So which one is right? Ask me later, all right? Like so much later in heaven, and I'll tell you, all right? That's, that's how sure I am here. With that in mind, what I want us to do is to take a look at the culmination of this great cosmic war. Now remember that the war is already won. The war was won at Calvary. Jesus died for his sins, he was buried, and then he came back to life. And what had initially appeared to be a death blow against Jesus, a blow to, to his head, was actually a blow to the heel. It was just a temporary setback. The real death blow when Jesus died and came back to life was against Satan. Satan then had been defeated. He was the one who had been mortally wounded an ultimate victory had been assured in that moment. It hasn't been completely realized yet. One day it will. So what will it look like? What will it mean for us? And what does it have to do with Christmas, right? Well, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. And it's the birth of Jesus that is looking forward to his ultimate victory. So let's look and see how the Bible describes what that's going to look like based on what we see here in Revelation 20. And the first thing that I want you to notice about what it's going to look like in the future and how ultimate victory is assured and how the birth of Jesus is looking forward to it is that one day the deceiver is bound. The deceiver is bound. Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now you'll remember previously in, in the book of Revelation, there, there is some context that it sort of explains some of what's been going on here. Way back in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation, we're told that a, a star from heaven has fallen. It's likely an angel, it's just prophetic imagery, figurative language, probably depicting an angel. And the angel is given a key to what is known as the bottomless pit. And when he opens up the pit, smoke begins to billow out. And out of the smoke came scorpion-like locusts, and they begin to torment non-believers for five months. And we're told then that another angel is now coming down from heaven, now that we're in Revelation 20. And the angel holds a key to that same bottomless pit, not to open it, but to shut it. And he's dragging along with him, it says, a great chain. Obviously, this chain is going to be used to bind Satan. I want you to look what the angel proceeds to do there in verse 2. It says that the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here we see the angel arresting the dragon, Satan, and binding him. You know what I get in my mind when I see this? Anybody ever been over to uh, uh, Silver Springs a, a few years ago when you used to have the gator shows or, or maybe Gatorland, right? And you'd see those alligators out there and inevitably if you go to one of those shows over in Orlando, they grab a hold of the tail of, of the gator and the gator tries to get around the wrestling and, and, uh, and you see this gator wrangler making this, this, this uh, uh, gator succumb to him. That's, that's the image I get here. He grabs a hold of the tail and will not let go no matter how much that, that gator thrashes. Well, I can just see this angel grabbing a hold of the tail of the dragon, Satan grabbing his tail. Satan is wrangling and he is writhing and he is failing. And for all of his thrashing, he cannot get free. Now you may be thinking, well, why isn't Jesus the one doing that? Why is an angel doing that? You've got to remember that Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus has already defeated Satan. He exerted, <coughs> excuse me, he exerted his authority over him already, so much so that now in the end, he can just turn it over to someone else. He can turn it over to one of his angels. <coughs> You'll see there in verse 3 that the angel seizes Satan, binds him for a thousand years, and then it says this. <coughs> he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we're giving a picture here of Satan's demise. He's bound with a chain, thrown into the bottomless pit. The pit is shut. The entrance is sealed, and yes, it's over, right? The only thing that would make this whole scene better for me is if the angel with them would have taken that key and thrown it away, right? But he doesn't do it. I'm going to tell you why something else is going to happen in a moment. But what, what's important to note here is the purpose behind the binding. I don't want to jump too far ahead. The purpose of the binding of the deceiver is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now here's where some of the debate between the different views of, of the millennium come into play. Some will ask, will ask, well, is this some future event or did this happen already? Or, or is it possible that we're living in the millennial reign of Christ already and that Satan was bound at the cross? Again, I don't want to wade out into the, and get lost in the weeds of that debate. What's more important here is the ultimate result, and that is Satan loses his ability to deceive. Don't, don't forget how this whole war started from the beginning. 
We're in this cosmic war to this very day because of Satan's deception. He had encroached in on God's creation. He had tempted and deceived Adam and Eve, leading them to sin. Here we are, still fighting the effects of the war, still dealing with it, and he is still deceiving. The day is coming when his deception and his deceiving ways will no longer be, and that's because of what Jesus did in dying for us. And what Jesus did on the cross a long time ago will ultimately result in the reversal of what went wrong in the garden. In the garden, Satan deceived humanity, and Jesus has now come to counter him and to defeat him. And ultimately, because of what he has done, Jesus stops and ends Satan's deception. And so the whole Bible has been looking to this point. All of our history comes to this moment at the beginning Satan was the deceiving serpent, but now here in Revelation, he is presented as another serpent-like creature, as a dragon. But now this dragon, this serpent dragon has been seized, he's been bound, and he has been imprisoned. He is utterly and completely defeated. Now you need to know that his defeat, his final defeat, sort of comes in a couple of parts. The first is here when, when he is bound. The second is going to come at the end of this millennium, at the end of the thousand years. We're told in verse 3 that after this thousand years, he must be released for a little while. Perhaps that's why the the, the key to the pit wasn't thrown away, right? And you may be wondering, well, what is the point of that? Why does God allow this? I mean, he had him bound. He had him sealed up in the pit. It should have been over. Why is Satan released? The Bible doesn't say. We can speculate all that we want, but for whatever reason... We're told that at some point Satan's going to be set free again. The, the premillennialist says, well, that's going to happen at the, the, some future point after the millennium occurs. The amillennialist says Satan is bound now and will be released at the, after the current age ends. But whatever, whatever the, the timing of this, the, his freedom's not going to last long. He will finally and ultimately be dealt with, but we'll get to that in just a moment. I want you to consider something else that the birth of Jesus is looking forward to as we're now in this moment having the, the, the advent, his first advent in mind, knowing that the second advent is coming. Not only is the deceiver bound, but note this. The saints, that's us, the saints are vindicated. Look at verse 4. And then I saw the thrones, saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If you've ever wondered what it would be like, what life would be like if Satan wasn't around, here you go. The saints of the Lord, that's us, Christians, ruling and reigning with Christ. And notice that John said that he saw thrones and sitting on them were those who had the authority to judge. So who who are these that are sitting on the thrones, sitting as judges with the authority to judge? Revelation 5 gives us a little bit of a clue. If you remember that scene, it's really a scene of worship. The Lamb of God, Jesus, is sitting on the throne and and there are worshipers gathering around the throne, and, and they're singing. And here's what Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 says, that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And note that it says this, 
and they shall reign on the earth. So I, I believe that the people ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, that's us, Christians. Those of us who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, where our sins have been forgiven based upon what Jesus did for us upon the cross, we shall one day reign as kings and as priests. And so those sitting on the throne of authority will likely be us. And yet this is yet another example of the, of the work of Christ that's reversing the damage and the destruction that, that, that occurred in the garden. Remember that when God created man, he charged him and he gave him a command and that was to have dominion over all creation. The, the, the book of Genesis uses the term dominion, but there's another word that's equated to it. It's reigning. But that charge to have dominion, to reign, got warped in, in the aftermath of the fall. But in the end, one day, do you not see it? Christ is going to restore us to a place of dominion, to, to a place of authority, and we get to reign with Him. Now John does mention a specific group of saints in the next verse, a group of Christian martyrs, those who, who, who died for their faith. They, they are the ones that boldly proclaimed Christ, and because they did so, they were executed. The Bible says that they lost their heads. They were beheaded. It was all because they refused to worship some creature known as the beast. We're not going to get into all of that, who the beast is. It's mentioned in Revelation 13. Just know that the beast was a servant of Satan, the Antichrist perhaps. But the point is, is that these saints remain true to Jesus. Though they were confronted and challenged, they were on Jesus' side standing with him. They remained true to Jesus when the attacks came. They refused to give in to the pressures of the world, even though it cost them their physical lives. They refused to give in to Satan, to those who followed Satan. And we are told that their reward was resurrection and reigning. They will be resurrected and they would reign with Christ. They came to life, it says, and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This means that though the world had opposed them, though the world had stood against them, though they found themselves on what at first appeared to be the wrong side of the battle, the wrong side of the war, though they were even casualties of that cosmic war, in the end, church, hear this, this is a, a promise for you and for me, they were vindicated in the end, proven to have been on the right side of the war all along. Now everybody else, those who are not with Christ, those, they will be found to be on the wrong side. I'm talking about those who died as unbelievers. They're, they're on Satan's side, have always been on Satan's side, whether they realize it or not. John briefly mentions them at the beginning of verse 5. He says, the rest of the dead, not those who were resurrected in the first resurrection, the rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now John's going to go immediately back, start talking about the resurrection of the saints again. And speaking of our resurrection, he says there in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So you need to know this, church. It's one of the great promises. Though we live in a fallen world, and though the effects of sin means that we will die one day, we will not live forever, at least in this body, there is a resurrection coming for all of us. Just as Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected. It's, our resurrection is referred to as the first resurrection here in Revelation 20. And it will be a bodily resurrection. Though we will all die, those who die in Christ as followers of Christ 
will experience a physical resurrection one day. And when it happens, when it happens, we will never ever again experience death again. We've died one time and there is no second death for us. Isn't that a good and encouraging word? Let me tell you what our resurrection means in regards to this grand cosmic war. Being resurrected to a glorified eternal life, friends, that's vindication. Being granted authority to reign with Jesus one day, that is vindication. It means that our loyalty to Him is proven right and true. Our faithfulness to Jesus in this life shows, uh, will be shown in the, in the life that is to come that we were on the right side. And I know that following Jesus and trusting Him isn't always easy. It often seems as if the world is throwing all, it's all against us. Its hostility grows toward us. But your faith and the reasonableness of your trust and your faith in Him, it will be proven true one day. Oxford philosopher Basil Mitchell, he put forward a, a little parable that he called the parable of the resistant leader. And it may help you to understand that though it doesn't feel like it sometimes in this life, your faith, that one day you're going to be vindicated and you're going to be proven true that you're on the right side of things. He's, here's how his parable goes. He says, imagine you're in German-occupied France during World War II and you want to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. And one evening in the local bar, a stranger comes up to you and introduces himself as the leader of the local partisans. And he spends the evening with you explaining the general requirements of your duties, giving you a chance to assess his, his uh, trustworthiness and offering you the chance to go no further. But his warning is stern. If you join, your life will be at risk. There will be the only face-to-face, -face, this will be the only face-to-face -face meeting you will have. After this, you will receive orders and you will have to follow them without question, often completely in the dark as to the whys and wherefores of the operation and always with the terrifying fear that your trust may be betrayed. And he writes, is such trust reasonable? Sometimes what the resistance leader is doing is obvious. He's helping members of the resistance. Thank heavens he is on our side, you say. But sometimes it's not obvious. He's in Gestapo uniform arresting partisans and unknown to you, releasing them out of sight to help them escape the Nazis. But always you must trust and follow the orders without question, despite all appearances, no matter what happens. The resistant leaders knows best, you say. Only after the war will the secrets will be open, the codes revealed, and the true comrades vindicated, the traitors exposed, and sense made of the explanation. Friends, this is where we are today. Christian, you are part of a resistance. You and I, were a part of a, a spiritual resistance. And one day, our faith will be vindicated. We will be resurrected. resurrected. We will reign, showing that we are on the winning team. So hang in there. And that leads us to one more thing about the culmination of this cosmic war. One more thing that the birth of Christ looks forward to and that's this third thing finally finally the enemy is defeated he and his followers are going to be dealt with finally and completely if you'll jump down to verse 7 8 9 again let me just read it it says when the thousand years are ended satan will be released from his prison again we don't know why in the mind of god this is happening but he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth gog and magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea. So his deception is it's going to be widespread. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Here we see the, <clears throat> the thousand years ending, the Satan's released. Again, we don't know why, but he is. And when he does, he goes right back to what his nature was always been, and that, the, that is, and what he does best is deceiving people. And he's deceiving the nations into following him and persuading them to start another war. And you'll notice from the size of the army and the, all the battle formations that, they, that, that as they're gathering against God's people, it's looking like it's going to be the mother of all battles here. I mean, check, check out the language again. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and this huge army is marching up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved, beloved city, and then wham! Fire comes down from heaven, and they're done. God don't play, right? It's over for all the attempt to try to usurp him again. God wins finally, completely. It's over. And then we read this in verse 10, that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What a sad, sad, sorry end to one who used to be before God worshiping him. Satan, Lucifer, falling. But when this happens, it will be finally done forevermore. Satan finally put down and judged eternally for his rebellion. The enemy finally getting what he deserves. You know what's crazy about all this? Satan's demise and, and God's victory is what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. We, we don't we really never thought of it that way before, probably never realized it, but we're celebrating peace on earth, the peace that will become real because of Jesus, that the deceiver is bound, Satan is bound, the enemy is defeated, while we, the saints, are vindicated, resurrected to new and eternal life. You know, we're not going to go there, but the last couple of chapters of Revelation reveal that God then is going to finally reset everything like it was before but 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 in new ways giving us a, a new heaven and a new earth the world as we know it one day will, will pass away and it's going to be incredible in this new heaven and new earth no more death no more crying no more sorrow no more pain all the brokenness that that sin brought into this world will not be in existence there life will be like it was supposed to have been before the fall and we'll be with god and we'll be with him forever and get to worship him forever, like it was supposed to be in this world before Satan raged the war. We'll experience a relationship with God as we were intended to have with Him from the very beginning. The way that we were created to do, that's because we were with Him. We were on His side. We were on the right side of the war because Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Now that's not going to be true for those who sided with Satan. We know that they are going to be rewarded, just as we're rewarded with resurrection and eternal life and reigning with Christ. Those who die without Christ are going to be rewarded as well, but not in the way that we're going to be rewarded. Unbelievers, when they die, they will remain dead until after the millennium, but then they are going to be resurrected, and, but they're going to be resurrected for a very specific reason, and that is to face judgment. In fact, Jesus once said as much. He said, in John chapter 5, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all of the tombs will, will hear his voice and they will come out 
And those who have done good in the resurrection of life uh, will, will, be, will come out to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, those who did not follow him, they will come out to the resurrection of judgment. What that is going to look like is really described at the end of Revelation 20. I just want to read it. I, I'm not going to unpack it, but I just want to read it. Look at verses 11 on down to verse 15. After Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, we see this. John said in his vision, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, uh, from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life and, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And then, praise God, death is done, because death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, John says, the lake of fire. And then these harrowing words in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Your friend, this is a warning. Now that you know that there is a great war waging and there's no middle ground, there's no neutrality in this war. As Jesus has said, if you're not with him, you're against him. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. And if you're on Satan's side in this war, one day you will ultimately share the fate that he is destined to have. You will one day, if you die without Christ, you will be one day thrown in the lake of fire, and there you will remain for all of eternity. It's harsh, isn't it? But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, if your name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, you don't have to worry. As we are told earlier in this passage, you will not face and experience the second death. So the question is, how do you get your name written in that book? I want my name in that book, don't you? The only way for your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life is to side with Jesus, to trust Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to join his team. The Bible tells us that by birth, because of the sin that came into this world a long time ago, that by birth, every human being is born a sinner. You see, we we're actually born on the wrong side of this war. By birth, by nature, we are on Satan's side. And the only way for us to be moved from Satan's side to God's side in this war is to renounce Satan, to choose to reject him and reject putting ourselves in the place of authority and rulership and reign in our lives and to submit to Jesus, to recognize that he is the only true God, that he and he alone is worthy of our worship, that he has died for our sins, confessing our sins to him and asking him to forgive us. Because what Jesus did on the cross a long time ago when he died, was buried, and came back to life in defeating Satan also defeated our sin. It also provided the way of salvation and forgiveness. And the only way for you to be on Jesus' side, the only way for your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life is to surrender your all to Jesus, to trust and believe in him. If you've yet to do so, friend, you're, you're tempting tempting fate because the day is coming when all of us will die as the book of hebrews tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment 
and you've read the consequences of the judgment of dying without Christ, do not tarry in pursuing Jesus. Do not tarry. Trust Him today. And if you do, guess what? You join the rest of us winners, knowing that Jesus has won the battle, and one day we will rule with Him and reign with Him in a resurrected life. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm thankful for this great hopeful message, as strong and as difficult and as harrowing as some of it will be for some one day. Lord, I'm encouraged in knowing that one day victory will be completely realized. We know that the victory has already been assured and we thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that if there be one person here today who does not know you, that today they will come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and recognize they've been on the wrong side of the war all all these years. That they are sinners and lost in their sin. The Lord, bring that conviction upon them that they might humble themselves and surrender to you. And Lord, I pray that you forgive them, save them, and encourage them, Lord, to know that when they, they are saved, they are given life and life eternal. So we ask this, Lord, that you move, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to ask you to stand.